0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another interview episode of the Right Club podcast. I'm Laurel Simmons, a co host of today's uh, interview, and I'm joined by Catherine Nelson Riley, our wonderful operations manager. Hi,
1: Catherine. We're into part two of our interview with Martin May. This is really a cool interview, isn't it? It's been fabulous. And as a budding real estate investor myself, the information that he's sharing is not only fabulous for those that are entering into real estate investing, but who are also looking to expand their portfolios. The information is just excellent.
0: Yeah, it really is. So before we get into the interview, we just want to remind everyone to go to therightclub.com online, sign up, it's free. There's so much information there, videos, podcasts, things you can read, a lot of information that you just, you know, is really valuable. So we hope to see you there. And now, Catherine, I think we should go to part two of our interview with Martin May. Welcome to the Right Club Podcast, where the focus is on helping you, the real estate investor, advance to the next level. And now let's join this week's hosts and share ways for you to customize your life.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So recently, reason we chose Vegas, it was very much by chance. We found ourselves having to go to Vegas multiple times when we were in Moncton, New Brunswick. We essentially saw that, you know, ended up going to a storage event, ended up going to a multifamily event, and all of these were, were staying in Vegas. You know, they're massive conferences, right? They were either gonna do Orlando or Vegas. So, you know, besides the flights being cheaper, as I shared earlier, besides, you know, the tax reasons, we also saw that, you know, this is where, this is the spot. This is where people come to. We found out that, you know, this city has the highest concentration of family offices of these institutional investors. And that's, this is where people want to host events. This is where people want to invest. net worth individuals who come to events. So we wanted to be surrounded by people of this caliber. And we wanted to be in the city where we can easily get access to influential people, right? And also just, you know, moving from Moncton to, to Vegas, it, it was a nice little upgrade. <laughs> Day nights got a lot more fun. There's so much more to do, <laughs> as can you can imagine. And when it comes to doing projects, we are actually not doing projects at all in Nevada just yet. We're looking for opportunities, but in Nevada, the land cost is really high and it's not necessarily uh, the, the best market because there's so there's been so much competition. There's been so much uh, new development that's been happening in in Vegas and the rest of Nevada. So we're looking. They're actually mostly in the Sunbelt states. So we're talking Texas, we're talking Arizona, talking Florida, all of these states. We're also starting to look in the Midwest as well. So we were looking at a deal in Four Way Indiana. So you know the the Sunbelt states it presents a massive opportunity because as you guys all know, that's where the majority of you know Canadians and Americans are moving to because they realize they can work anywhere. So Florida and Texas, you know, they top the list for the highest growing states in the country. Whereas places like California and New York, they're losing the population, right? So they're they, they they rank as the bottom for for having any population growth because everyone's leaving. So we see massive opportunities in secondary and tertiary markets in places like Texas and Florida. So that's why we have a project in El Paso, Texas right now. You know, it's uh, four acres. the The reason we are doing development instead of doing a value add was over the past couple of years, everyone and their grandparents are starting to become real estate investors, you know, because the interest rate, uh, people are sitting on a lot of money and they need, needed to find a way to spend it. They were working remotely and they, you know, truthfully, a lot of them probably got bored. So they started looking into real estate investing. They started investing different asset types. So if you ask any self-storage operator or a self-storage broker, they're going to tell you there's been, a flood the floodgate has opened. right there's been so many people that are flooding into uh, this asset type so over the past few years it's been extremely competitive right all of these investors and interest it really drove the cap rate to be at the lowest point and occupancy level have also never been this uh th- this this high over the past few years so It's a very interesting time. Uh, People are also saying, you know, self-storage bubble is about to burst because, you know, this is not normal. This is not sustainable, right? So over the past year, over the past 12 months, you see nationwide, the rental rates are starting to drop, but they're just getting back to normal levels, right? So people always say self-storage industry was great. Now it's good. So the whole reason we decided to get into uh, development versus value add is we didn't want to be caught in a frenzy we didn't want to compete with so many other buyers when it comes to value-add opportunities because everyone was looking at them. The new investors, the experienced investors, the institutional investors looking to consolidate. So these asset types were trading at unprecedented value compared to what's considered a fair value. So we're trying to find the best way to tap into this market. We decided to partner up with a development consultant that develops properties for REITs for the past 25 years so their team will usually look for vacant parcels and they will build facilities that are suitable for class A development so they look at demographics data they look at you know the market data they look at saturation levels and they make sure that you know this is a sustainable project not just in the short term but over the next 5 to 10 years right and There's obviously way fewer people that are looking for vacant lots compared to people that are looking for self storage facilities. So right off the bat, we saw a drop in competition, right? When we're putting offers on land, there's not as many competition, not as much competition that's happening. When we're uh, working with land as well, the sellers are more likely to work with us on the terms, right? So either seller financing will work with us on a longer timeline because they have truthfully no other options. So it's a lot easier for us to negotiate. But even just as a product, uh, when you're building from the ground up, banks, institutions, they need to see what type of team you have. They need to see all the due diligence that you have done, right? So it's very hard to overpay for a property when you're doing a development because banks are just not going to lend you money. If this is a bad project, they're going to see, okay, where's your feasibility study? Where is your site plan? Where's your entitlement? And you have to work with the city as well. The city has to give their stamps of approval and you work with your consultants, you work with multiple different trades, right? To bring this project into a reality. At any given point, if any of them says no, this project cannot proceed, right? When it comes to value add, you can easily overpay. <laughs> you can easily find a lender or find an investor that's going to give you the down payment that you need to, to overpay for a property but not so much for development. For development, everything has to be done to the T and you have to know what you're doing because that's how you can get the financing for it. So I find that to be actually a really good way to protect myself um, and protect all of my investors that are involved. Um, as a product, when you're building brand new, you are required to do usually required to do a feasibility study, right? Banks require that. And the consultant of the feasibility study is gonna study the market, know exactly what the market needs. Maybe the market needs more temperature-controlled by 5s instead of outdoor drive-up by 20s right? So you're able to create a product that has the best product market fit. So you're able to create a facility that suits the needs, the exact needs of this market. Compared to if you buy a value add, you simply cannot do that. Because if you buy a value add, you know, that property was probably built over the last 10, 20, or even 30 years. It was built according to the demand that much longer ago, right? So there are so many different advantages when it comes to, you know, doing a ground up. Part of our grand exit strategy is our end buyer, right? We're not looking to sell from Martin to Catherine. We're looking to sell from Martin to a company like Public Storage. So we want to sell our portfolio to REITs as the ultimate institutional exit strategy. So we need to know exactly what they're looking for. And these reeds are, you know, their first choice is a temperature-controlled A-class facility. So we wanted to get directly to that so that we can build a whole portfolio of these and have a huge exit uh, by, by selling it to these reeds who are looking for a market consolidation.
0: I think, and I've heard you say before, that also another exit strategy is even if you don't complete the project and you've done some of the, the work on the land itself, by the na- very nature of what you've done that you have increased the value of the land and you would be able to sell that, correct? And so you're still making money.
2: Yeah, and, and that's really attractive for us during times like this, right? So that's exactly what my partners are doing. So my partners going to set up a business called Shovel Ready Storage. Um, if you're listening to this and you're looking to get into storage, trying to buy an entitled piece of land, uh, that's fully a business on its own too, right? So my partners are treating this as a full business where they will simply get the land to, to your point and they will get the building permits, they'll have a shovel ready. Instead of building it, they're simply just gonna sell it to a developer out of markup, right? So, so absolutely. So that presents a way for us to exit out of the deal and achieve the RRRs for our investors without spending the five year, the, the four year period, right? It will only take a couple months or a year to achieve the same RRR for our investors. So yeah, no, that you know that's one exit strategy. There are also developers who will sell before they even finish building it, right? They will start building it, but without putting it on the brand, they might sell it to you know space or or Public Storage or or Cube Smart. And and another way is you know as soon as you you finish building it without getting any tenants in, you could sell that facility. You could sell it you know while you're trying to stabilize it, right? Uh, because there's a lot of operators were looking for automation, they're looking for different ways to improve the operational efficiency of this asset type. Um, so that, you know, if you have a facility that's not fully occupied yet or that has some inefficiency, investors see this as a value add, right? Investors see this as a potential to, to add some more value to the property. Uh, but our primary strategy is really to bring this to stabilization because we have partnered up with KickSmart, which is one of the major REITs. They're going to, uh, treat this as a class A facility. They're going to run it as one of their own. So we are confident that our properties are going to uh, be run at the optimized value. So we're going to sell a stabilization to achieve the full amount of the potential for our property. So, you know, when we sell, it won't be a value add. It will fully be a stabilized, state of the art. It will be, you know, acquired by a family office that's looking for a stabilized asset or a private equity.
0: Okay. And and that makes sense. You've got so many exit strategies that it, it, you really are insuring yourself, aren't you, against whatever happens? Because, oh, I don't know, life happens. <laughs> yeah. In business too, life happens, right? Okay. Right. Here's another question. You mentioned earlier that you went into secondary and tertiary markets. And I know that just like when you're buying residential or commercial property in Canada, Yeah, there's the province or the state and there's the municipality and that's fine. But then you narrow it down to neighborhoods, right? Because one neighborhood versus another in the same city can be entirely different, have a different cap rate. I mean, there's so many factors that go into this. So what kind of, I mean, I guess it's part of your feasibility study, but what do you look at when you decide to buy a, a piece of land uh, to develop. And what are the factors you look at in terms of the demographics of the area?
2: Fantastic question. Uh, so we look at population density, right? So we've got to make sure we're serving enough people. Uh, usually for the type of facilities we're building, right? These are multi-story climate control buildings. Uh, so we can't build them in, you know, Michi, New Brunswick. we can build it in a the, in the small town, right? Uh, so usually we're targeting around 40 to 50,000 people in the five minute drive. So around three to five mile radius. That's the minimum of what we're trying to target. Medium household income, um, we don't need it to be, you know, actually, you know, like super high. We're essentially looking at, you know, slightly around the U.S. Uh, national average. So we're looking at around 60 to 70,000 um, of the immediate market that we wanna serve. If they're too low income, they can barely make rent, right? How, how are they gonna pay for a storage unit? So we're really going after just your average, you know, blue-collar, hardworking Americans that have, you know, a big family. And and, and those are usually people we're we're going after. Um, So population density, medium household income. Uh, We also look at population growth data as well. So we leverage tools such as ColdStar. We also leverage a lot of storage-specific tools such as Radius Plus and and StoreTrack. And we track that data uh, whenever we come across a piece of property. So that's what we call the back of the napkin math, right? So it's a very, it's like a sniff test, right? Like we essentially take a quick look. Um, if it passes everything um, that we're looking for um, on the demographic side, then we look at it from a storage perspective, right? We look at saturation levels. We look at how many competing facilities are in the immediate three to five mile radius. Um, we also look at what type of facilities are there? Are they B class? Are they, you know, your mom and pop? Where are we competing against the REITs? So to give you an example, for the El Paso project that we have, there's only two other facilities serving the same five-mile radius. And in the five-mile radius market, we have over 100,000 people living there. And there's brand-new developments happening to the east side and the north side of our site. Brand-new residential developments happening. And we already have that really healthy population density. Medium household income, we're around 70,000. And on the self tourist side, there's only two other facilities competing in the same market. They're both sitting at 98 to 99% occupancy. So we'll do some secret shopping. We'll call them up, um, essentially telling them, hey, like, we're actually, um, you know, I'm a local landlord. I'm looking to rent some units. How many units you got? Tell me everything you got. How much rents are you charging, right? You can find a lot of that information just by going on their website. But to get the most up-to-date information, you know, we'll do the work to actually call them. And then we realize, oh, this area is severely or severely underserved, right? And there's a data, it's, it shows you square foot per capita. So it's your total rentable square foot of self-storage in this market divided by the total population, right? So we pay for this platform that can just generate that whenever you put in the address. The number we look for, you know, nationwide it's around six or seven square foot per capita in the US. So any number that's lower than that, you know, chances are it, it's likely very underserved. We also look for rates. So, you know, got to make sure they're charging reasonable rates, like as a market. So we only build in markets where we can get about $1.60 per square foot per month. If anything lower than that, chances are with the current interest rate, it just, it doesn't pencil out, right? So that's the general rule of thumb. So $1.60 per square foot per month. So that's about $20 per year per square foot. Um, so so that's where you're going to see, you know, my partners and I, that's what usually how we look at these properties. Uh, but yeah, if you're listening to this, hope you're taking notes of this. It's literally the strategy I'm giving away, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's how we look for what type of land parcels fit what we're looking for. And for our development consultant, they'll usually need this to be light industrial or commercially zoned. You know, if it's residential, we're not going to it's like, if it's sold for residential, chances are it's probably not on the major street. We want this parcel to be on the major street, to be right next to, you know, grocery stores, drugstores, like essentially your everyday needs, right? So, so yeah, it's fairly straightforward, uh, but I'll say because of the recent um, flood of uh, a new developments, it's been very challenging to find lands that that are still underserved, right? So that's why whenever we see opportunity, we definitely put in a lot of due diligence, and we make sure that you know everything checks out, and then we fully proceed with it. So, in the case of El Paso, it checks all of our boxes, and we have been working on this for months. Right? It's a really lengthy process, and thankfully, because we're working with our partners, we have a dedicated team of people who are doing this full time. So, every single day, they look on market, off market for these land opportunities.
0: Okay, I have another question. It's a little bit of a left hand turn here but a lot of people know that i'm really into wine and i have another podcast about wine and all the rest of it so one of the things i know with a class storage units is that sometimes they they will offer wine storage facilities right or and also also car people who are who have high end cars maybe exotics they need a, spa- a place to store their vehicles maybe not so much in the south where it doesn't get snow and there's none of this crappy sleet and ice and salt But still, sometimes you gotta store store an exotic, right? So, in when you are looking at building your developing your storage units, do you always add in something that serves the sort of the higher end? Because yes, I know you're focusing on the 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 median income, but there's always people who have income greater than the, the median, obviously, and they have valuable assets that they want to protect and they want to store. Do you look at that at all?
2: Yeah, no, I'm so happy you brought it up because uh, uh, those are the two niches that are actually very much happening in the self-storage industry. So why storage in markets like Vegas, in markets like San Francisco? Uh, I personally know a few of these uh, property owners that that very much focus on that, right? Um, great margins uh, for, for that. And I, one of my investors, you know, based in San Francisco, he was always telling us, he would drive thirty minutes just to get to his wine storage that he has in the city, and and he would go out, you know, with his buddies or with the, with his wife after picking up, you know, a bottle of wine from the wine storage. So there is a lot of applications for that in the primary markets. Absolutely, Boulder and RV. Interesting enough, it's a, a niche within the self storage industry that still has so much potential. It's extremely fragmented. There's actually no REIT. There's no institutional sized investors that are in that space yet. And right now, if you think about building an RV, most of them are just parking lots. They're unpaved, dirt covered parking lots where people are parking their, you know, half a million dollar rigs out there, right? So uh, there's so much potential. And when it comes to A-Class, essentially, if you build a canopy, right, to, to cover the, the RVs, the boat, where the exotic cars from the elements, and you pave the roads, you're already considered a class facility. So you have your partially covered, you have your fully enclosed, you have different ways to, to really build a boat and RV where it's out in car storage. So that's a whole nother asset type, you know, within the self-storage industry. And, and we're actually, that's where we're looking for existing value add, by the way, because we realized that the value add is so much more straightforward. You essentially build a structure uh, and then you're able to increase the rents, right? And, and to your point, Sure, we don't get snow uh, down here, but the sun kills the, 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 the elements of the car, right? So most of these uh, RV owners or boat owners, they want their uh, vehicles to be covered under any sort of you know, canopy where we're enclosed. So, so that's a very interesting point that you brought. Another revenue source that's really fascinating is there's tenant insurance, right? When you're operating at a, a facility of this level, so A-class facilities. Tenant insurance, how it usually works is you partner up with either an insurance provider or you know, if you have property management, chances are they probably have it. So you charge $12, $13 per unit. But in El Paso, we we're building about 700 units, right? So your margins on that could get really high because you, know, you, you only pay for the insurance plan for about 4 or $5 per unit. So, so the difference, the arbitrage there, you just get to, you, you get to keep that. That's part of your revenue stream. So it's really attractive for self storage owner to start introducing that when they turn over a property, when they're building a property, because that's a huge value add to their bottom line, right? And it protects the tenants in case there's flood, in case there's any break-ins, um, up to a certain amount, usually it's around, you know, 3,000, 4,000 to 5,000. You're really not supposed to store anything over the value of 5,000 in there, but people still do. Now, which is a very simple way uh, for you to add value. You can even charge, a lot of people, you know, there were options for, Bluetooth locks on their storage units. So it's easier, you know, you essentially can unlock the unit with a phone. Provides a lot of convenience. And most of these operators, will start charging a technology fee. <laughs> so they'll charge, you know, 30 bucks, 5 bucks to cover the cost of the locks. But again, you have 700 units, right? So the scalability really plays into a huge factor when it comes to the little fees that you're charging. Um, I also love the fact that, you know, when you're trying to turn over a unit, if you increase the rent by a mere five bucks or ten bucks, the, the the tenants are not going to move out, right? If they pay one oh five to one ten, they're not going to move out because of that. They don't want to bother their friends or their family to rent a U-Haul and just to get the stuff across the street to a cheaper storage facility. The tenants are just going to eat it, right? Even if they do complain, operators will just offer them, "Hey, like, I'll give them the next month for free, right?" And then they're going to do the math and they're go, "Oh, sure, I'll just stay here." So. Again, once you have that scale, it, it plays a huge difference. So that's why, you know, I, I think people should seriously consider this asset type. And that's why, you know, these operators really leverage the scalability to help them add additional revenue to uh, their bottom line.
0: Well, Martin, you know what? I think we could talk about this for hours and hours because there's so much information. You're such a wealth of knowledge. And this is wonderful. But we're, now we're going to go to the lightning round. And this is where we ask you four questions. Catherine and I will uh, trade off here, and all you have to do is say what comes to the top of your mind. So, Catherine, you start.
1: Are you looking to create generational wealth and get one step closer to financial freedom? Then Better Mortgage Select is the mortgage brokerage for you. Whether you're a first-time homebuyer or seasoned investor looking to grow your portfolio, Better Mortgage Select is here to help you achieve your financial goals. With over two decades of experience, our team of financial planning consultants have perfected our own unique system that tailors every step to suit your financial needs. For a free consultation, reach out to us today at info at bettermortgageselect.ca or give us a call at 905-569-8326. We're here to help you get started and prove why we're the top-ranked mortgage team in Canada. Well, dude, that was awesome information, Martin. As always, just there's so much education that that we gleaned from you. So as you've gone through all of your experiences, if you could go back and tell your 18-year-old self something, what would that be?
2: Yeah, my 18-year-old self, that would be exactly 10 years ago. So, <laughs> Oh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, when I was 18, I think I was really stressed about, you know, making money. I was really stressed about climbing a career ladder. I was very zeroed in on um, my business school. I went up to Montreal for McGill. I was just very excited to to start, you know, getting into, you know, business, getting into the employment world. You know, I was taking multiple part-time jobs. I really just tried to make money right off the bat, right? So I would say the biggest advice is I, I wouldn't chase the money as much because I ended up uh, sacrificing my passion, ended up, you know, kind of give away a a lot of what I cared about because I was just so busy chasing money. I will, if I could do it again, I would definitely tell my younger self that, hey, don't chase the money, chase whatever that truly interests you. So really find deeper into what motivates you, what makes you passionate, what do you feel passionate about, pursue that. Obviously, you know, it has to be something that makes sense if it's, you know, something that's totally all in the life field, you're not gonna make any money at all. But you know, something that's you're, you're passionate about, something that you can wake up on the on a Saturday, you know, morning and still work on it without any compensation, and you still feel very driven about it. Cause like when you're competing at a level, when you get to a certain point, you no know, money is gonna come to you. Right. So I'll say that would be my my advice for myself.
0: Okay. Well, 18 year old Martin, pay attention. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that's
0: right. In another universe. Okay. Question number two. You mentioned you went to a lot of conferences and, but I'm going to ask you what, it, man, maybe the conferences is the answer. What's your favorite resource for learning?
2: Yeah, my favorite resource, is, it'll be a two-part answer. So the, the first answer will be, you know, just your normal podcasts and books, right? That's going to get you into the door. For into the door, you at least know what you're talking about. You can carry on the conversation if you consume that. But the life events, and that's why, you know, I love how the right club has said that, but it's literally behind you. <laughs> so you, it's these podcasts, online community and life events. I, I see that being a very pro, natural progression of how people should really consume the content, right? They can do stuff on their own, but real business happens in person, right? So like, you know, after COVID, I'm so thankful. It's, you know, like we, we can shake hands, we can go to events because that's where you really get to learn from talking to other people. You can share the ideas that you learned in the podcast, in the book with these people. You can ask these real operators about their experience. And they might even tell you, hey, that's great in theory, but that would never work in this market, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Um, So exchange your business cards, like going to these events, be extremely coachable, be extremely curious, talk to everyone. That's always my philosophy. My wife and I, we actually always spit up when we go to these events because we want to cover more people. Yeah. and. Give you an example of the event that we recently went to, it was a fund launch. That's, you know, it's, it's America-based mastermind. People were trying to start funds. So real estate funds, hedge funds, private equity funds. And we got to meet so many people who are established in their own industries. They're looking to do it at a higher level. So they have done, you know, real estate syndications multiple times and they're trying to launch a $50 million, $20 million fund. So just getting to hear the, the struggles were. The, uh, the goals they have for their individual businesses. One of them was even a used car dealership. They wanted to do in-house financing. They're, they're, they're trying to start a $10 million fund so they can easily scale up that part of the business. It just opened up so many more doors. It really opened up our eyes into what's possible, what can be done, right? So it, it makes us look at deals differently. And we simply cannot do that if we're just listening to the same podcast, right? or reading the same ones. But yeah, I would say step one, you know, start consuming content on your own. Step two, really get yourself out there. Talk about the content that you just consume. And then you're going to see how far you're able to.
1: Wow. That's really great advice. Thank you. So at 28, like you really accomplished an awful lot for your young age. What is the one attribute that you feel that has made you successful?
2: The one attribute will probably be, I'll say just the fact that, you know, I'm an immigrant. You know, I moved to North America when I was around 14, 15. So I was always nimble and flexible and ambitious. That's just part of my personality, but very nimble and flexible. have the humility to know that, you know, there's so much I still don't know. So I'm always ready to learn, always ready to consume. So that's why, you know, when we saw the opportunity in New Brunswick, honestly, when I first went to Moncton to visit, I, I thought there was no grocery store. I thought I had to bring groceries from Montreal, right? Like I literally knew nothing about this market, but just going there and asking a bunch of questions, you know, seeing a bunch of properties and, you know, be curious enough to learn and not have that, oh, I'm from Montreal, from a big city. I don't, don't care about this town. Really just seeing the value in these things, um, it, it's, it's, it's given me a lot, right? So just being able to see the value and be curious to learn and be extremely flexible. Like we're able to just pack up our car and left, right? We just fully moved, uprooted our lives to New Brunswick and we did the same thing to come to Vegas. So I think that's a huge quality of any entrepreneur to be able to take the key and to be able to move with with that speed.
0: Wow, that's great. Okay, last question. What do you do for fun when you're not working in all your different businesses? What do you do for fun?
2: Yeah, I don't want it to sound concerning, but my therapist was very concerned when I told him that. He was, yeah, I would tell him I, I would work out, but I was still listen to like motivational speeches. I will listen to like storage podcasts. <laughs> he was like, he was basically telling me to get a life. Um, but I love, I, you know, I love your reading really to into wine, Laura. So I I absolutely love, you know, doing workouts. I think that puts me in the physical state. I get to challenge myself and, you know, I put myself in really uncomfortable situations, you know, such as challenging myself physically. It makes me feel like I deserve the success, right? So if I'm really hard on myself and I'm able to pull through with it, I'll be like, oh, you know what? I deserve that. If I lost some weight, if I look good or whatever, I'm like, okay, that's great. I deserve it. I'm looking to travel a little more as well. So we have the goals of, you know, spending some time not just in the US, yeah. right? So our plan will be wanna be able to work, you know, remotely, spend some time in Dubai, in Asia, we like to experience different cultures. Uh, we actually got married in Spain, right? So it's absolutely, we're very adventurous people. So I would say we'd love to travel, experience different cultures, experience, you know, different foods. And yeah, that's what we do for fun when we're not working, I'll say.
0: All right. That's right up my alley. Anybody who knows me, it's like wine, food, travel. All right. I'm there. Not even a question. Like, let's go. Because that's where we work, right? Is to have these experience, to have this fun. So Martin, what's the best place for people to reach you?
2: Yep. So if they, you know, go on Instagram, they can look up Martin Storage. <laughs> they will find me. I'm on there as it's Martin May. But if you just look up Martin Storage, my name is going to pop up. You can always find me on Facebook, any of the social media platforms. Obviously, our group is operated under mainly investment group. Uh, but as I said, the best way is to just look at my personal name and I will be happy to answer any questions that you have, like wholesaling, New Brunswick, self storage always out here trying to add value to anyone that's reached out. So
0: Okay, great. And we also have your contact information in our show notes. So anybody's listening, you want to go on and, and look at the show notes, that information is there. Okay. Thank you so very much, Martin. This was great. So much information. Wonderful.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun feeling this.
0: Well, Catherine, I don't know about you, but Martin shared so much information. I'm so thrilled with this. I could listen to this again and again. I mean, take scads and scads of notes. I didn't have time because I was, you know, I was just fascinated by what he had to say. But as I go through it again, I'm going to be really looking closely at the details because that's what he provided was the details. So I'm so grateful we had him on. I hope everyone enjoyed it as much as we did.